hey, this is Matt Dwyer, and I just want to invite you to check out themattdwyer.com. That's my website, where it's a landing spot for all things that are the podcast, like my Patreon page. For $5 a month, you could become a Patreon subscriber. You get bonus blogs, bonus content. A lot of my interviews go two hours, but I only post an hour, so there's the part two there. There's episodes in their entirety that unedited a lot of stories that you might not hear in the podcast so go to themattdwire.com become a patreon subscriber there's also merchandise you can buy t-shirts and a phone case i think <laughs> those are the only two things i have right now but you can also find my social media and see the past episodes every episode is on there uh, you can see all, a lot of my past guests. You might discover some people you didn't know were on the show and be like, holy shit, he's had Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips, or holy shit, he's had Danita Sparks from L7. So go to themattdwire.com, become a Patreon subscriber, buy some merch. Thank you. In the This is a music podcast, and speaking of music, that song that played me in is Over It from the album Wiseacre, and it is by Eric Slick, and this is a great episode. Uh, also, in the show notes, you can find Eric Slick's website and his band camp. You should go buy his music. It's really great. He also plays drums in the great band Dr. Dog. He's a studio musician. He's played with everybody from The War on Drugs to Taylor Swift even on this episode, he talks about the one time he was asked to play in the Violent Femmes on the fly. <clears throat> it's a really great episode. Eric's awesome. Please check it out, as I just said. Um, I think that's it. I don't, I just, I recorded my new, oh, I did, I was going to say, you know, you might have noticed I changed the name of the show. I'm just going to start calling it Dwyer, even though every thing says the conversations with Matt Dwyer or Dwyer, whatever the show is. I should have just called it that all along. I think I've talked about this in another episode, but everybody calls me Dwyer. My kids sometimes sometimes call me Dwyer. So why fucking just, you know, took it's taken me a decade almost to think of this. <laughs> I never liked the title. But, you know, eight years ago when I was just a booze-fueled weirdo it seemed like a good idea i'll blame and yes i'm blaming my bad title choice on drinking because uh hopefully i can blame other bad behaviors on it and then they probably can probably chances are pretty good but um eric is great we had a really fantastic conversation uh please go to his website support his music get rid of your spotify uh, I don't know if you know about this about Spotify. I mean, they fucking suck. They suck to begin with, with not paying musicians enough. Recently, comedians like Lewis Black, Patton Oswald, a bunch of others, asked for them to get paid for their copyright, the written copyrights. You know, like a songwriter would get paid. And they, up uh, Eddie Pepitone, who's been on the podcast, he's one of these guys. They asked for, you know, legal pay like it's not a fucking crazy concept spotify just took nothing no argument no debate no like hey maybe we could talk about this they just took the the their art i won't say content because that's an insult to creative people took it off the site took it off of spotify that's who spotify is fuck them fuck this streaming stuff i'm so over it uh, i hope hope i hope something is done about it the CEO of Spotify makes like three, he's worth $3 billion. That guy could take a half a billion dollars of his own money and probably pay the vast majority of the people who get listened to on his platform, at least the indie people. Bono, he doesn't need it. But, you know, a lot of other people, they need it. So when that guy's worth $3 billion and he pays Joe Rogan $300 million to be put his fucking rambling bullshit on <laughs> on Spotify, his podcast. Sorry, I don't like Joe Rogan. I think he is says some very idiotic things, and a lot of people listen to him, and that's irresponsible. But if you, if you 
can pay Joe Rogan $300 million. You can pay a musician the proper music stuff. There. That was some technical speak. Anyway, that was... Uh, I had no idea I was going to go into that, but I've been, it's been eating at me. And I'll admit, I, oh, I, I, I had Spotify for a very long time and it was hard to leave because the other, the other apps aren't quite as good. Like they're not as easy to navigate and stuff, but fuck off. I can go to Bandcamp and pretty much hear anything I want and I can buy it. Okay. I hope uh, I hope you've enjoyed my rant. <laughs> um, here's my conversation with Eric Slick. I think drummers often get pegged as being late. Like we're on time musically, but we're late <laughs> to rehearsals because, because we're so scatterbrained. I think that something that drummers share is that, you know, we're juggling four limbs most of the time. So I think that's an extension of our personality. We're, we're juggling four things at once. Usually. Do you think those drummer stereotypes uh, are real? Cause I, cause there's always like, you're the heavy partiers, the coke, coke, coke heads. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> lunatics. There's a, a bit of a lunatic quality. In in my experience, uh, the drummers are like the the mediators, and, and that's in my experience. I feel like the drummers are usually the ones who are like trying to feel out the vibe of a room, and they're like, you know, bringing the singers and the guitarists or the singers and the bass players together, and you know, preventing them from being like. <laughs> and angry at each other. I I I I don't think that you're like at least the, in my you're like the youngest drum- kid. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think drummers, especially nowadays, like a lot of the drummers I know are not heavy partiers because like you can't really play. Like guitar players are like, oh whatever. It's like I can just like <laughs> I can like brown out on some notes and like you know play some fucked up notes. But like if you if the drummer's fucking up, the whole show is horrible. You can't, you, drummer can't be fucking up. Yeah. Yeah. I think the partying drummer thing is more of a seventies sort of stereotype. Yeah. Like Keith Moon and John Bonham are not necessarily the platonic ideals <laughs> of like what we should be calling healthy musicians. <laughs> I don't know how the fuck they did it. Like, I mean, I, I heard rumor that sometimes they would play a track instead of moon. I'm not going to name names, but I know of a few classic rock drummers who have drummers behind the stage, but I'm not going to name names. I can't. I understand. But it, do, but it does happen. Still so to sus- this day? To this day, your suspicions are correct. I'm going to guess it's more leans towards the hair metal world. You're completely wrong, but I will. <laughs> but, but <laughs> no, it's funny. Um, it's Larry yes. Mullen Jr. Oh, it's definitely not Larry. Larry's got the strongest right foot out of any rock drummer. Wow. I think, I think maybe ever. Yeah. I played drums as a kid, but I, I quickly was like, this isn't my future. <laughs> I, I, well, yeah. You know what I, you know, I love, uh, there was some, I forget what comedian was talking about this. It might've been Mulaney or something, but he was talking about like, you know, you've got Bono, the edge and Larry. <laughs> 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 it's, it's it's a little it's a little ridiculous it's like it's like you got those two guys and then yeah i'm larry hi i'm just uh playing drums for you today i'm larry <laughs> i'm always amazed like that's what i think of like with dudes like ringo or yeah. charlie watts like those guys were doing it and i'm like it into their 80s and yeah. it's like the stamina like to still be good at like i'm it's kind of amazing right yeah, I mean, I think drummers, like, you can't, <laughs> with the exception of a select few, it's like, yeah, you have to, you have to stay relatively healthy, I think. Like, if you want, if you want longevity, I mean, Roy Haynes, the jazz drummer, like, I mean, he's like almost a hundred and he's just up there like burning, like playing like crazy jazz stuff. Yeah. Chico Hamilton played into his yeah. fucking 80s. And so did Art Blakey, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and Art Blakey got a late start too. I don't think he was uh, a band leader until his thirties or something like oh, that. Wow, I, I mean, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So, if, you know, <laughs> we can uh, we can uh, we we can stop having imposter syndrome now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have imposter syndrome at all? Yeah, still do. 
Isn't that wild? Even with, yeah, no matter what you accomplish, I think like there's always some degree of, uh, you know, not feeling that like you've nailed it, not feeling fulfilled. And I think that that's sort of what keeps people going. It's sort of the delusion of being a musician. Uh, we're all a little delusional, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause so, I, yeah, I, I just, I saw that, you know, you were excited to talk to Todd Rundgren when you did a podcast with him. And I'm like, you've played with fucking everybody. And you played with yeah. Adrian blue who played with so it's just like weird that and i've worked with like insane people and i'm still to this day where i'm like can't believe i'm working with this guy oh every day of my life i'm pinching myself in some situation you know like uh i was doing that war on drugs record last year at united in la and i'm at this the studio where they did a lot of the strings for pet sounds and i'm just looking around like wow how did this how did this happen why am i here and the the answer is that i'm a good hang (laughs) first and foremost first and foremost i'm a good hang secondly i'm like i'm like pretty good at drums i'm not like i'm not vinnie kalayuda level i'm not like dave weckle level i'm not spanky level i'm not any of these like insane instagram drummer levels but like i'm good enough and i'm a good enough hang where like people will will hire me and if i can just sustain that level for the rest of my life, I think I'm going to be all right. Um, is the good hanging important, more important than anything? Even if you're like bottom level drummer, if you're a fucking dick, is that going to well, hurt you? Uh, well, yeah, of course it's going to hurt you. I mean, think about if you're on tour with somebody and they're, they've got shitty energy, or they're a shitty person. I mean, like it, it, it can be the nail in the coffin of a tour. And, and it could also like, it doesn't matter how great they are. If they're like aloof and a shitty person, you don't want to work with them. Like I want somebody who's really good and also a really good person. And at the end of the night, isn't just like slobbering drunk, you know? (laughs) So, so, so I think, I think it's a mixture of all those things. And that's the key to longevity in the music industry, uh, which is already, uh, an industry that doesn't have a ton of longevity to begin with. <laughs> Is there, cause I've talked to a couple other people about this and I'm curious cause when I, I'm older than you and that was the whole like thing is like got a party to be creative or a mm-hmm. musician. Do you feel like that mystique is taken out of the equation these days? Granted some yeah. people suffer from addiction. So that's a whole nothing ball, ball, ball game. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's less so in my, in my experience. I mean, it's, it's contextual. I mean, there's some people who like, yeah, I mean, when I, I guess when I first started touring in the mid two thousands, I was touring with some pretty hard partiers and it was dark and dangerous, but then like, I don't know if the internet has leveled the playing field at all, or if it's just like an an overall uh, shift in consciousness. But I feel like a lot of people that I know and a lot of people that I tour with are trying to be healthier, Uh, whether that means like waking up and meditating on tour or doing yoga or like going to go to planet fitness on a day off or something (laughs) like, I don't know. I mean, I, I think people just realize that it's not sustainable and, and uh, yeah, I also don't subscribe to the myth of the suffering artist. I mean, I think that like all humans suffer. So like, that's the baseline, right? Like, it, <laughs> like in Zen, in Zen Buddhism, uh, suffering is the, is the human condition. So I think that like when people are like, Oh, I'm this suffering artist. It's like you and everybody else, who the fuck's not suffering, especially now, you know, like people are to exist is to suffer. So I think, so I, so I think it's also about mitigating that and finding joy within the suffering of life, because I don't think, you know, people die. <laughs> I know. Wait, what are we? Ten minutes in the conversation. People die. <laughs> we're all gonna. We're all gonna die. So, like that. That in and of itself is is <laughs> such is such a you know baseline of suffering for the human condition. So I, I I don't subscribe to the like I need to suffer more for my art to have more validity. I think that like a lot of people create in spite of their suffering, and it's it's a it's a slippery slope once you get into it. Yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, I, I subscribe more to the thing of like, 
you can tap into a well of emotions when you're writing and we've all felt the range of emotions. We've all, I mean, unless you're a fucking psychopath, you've definitely had your heart. You've definitely had your heart broken by somebody or something. Some, some event in your life has broken your heart. Everyone has experienced some form of trauma that is like deep seated or, or something that they're aware of. Um, and you, you can use those things like, like with a paintbrush, you know, you can dip into those wells of emotion and experience those things and relive those things through your music. Um, and I think music as a form of self-expression is a really great way to access and heal and continuously heal the things that are, are your suffering. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. 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 I, I recently read David Lynch's book on meditation and creativity. And he was just saying like, he also talks about the suffering artist. He's like, you create better when you're in a state of bliss, like when you're happy. Yeah. And so that book changed my life. That's catching the big fish you're talking about. Yes, sir. Yeah. So catching the big fish was the beginning of my spiritual path. Like my friend, Dominic, one of my best friends bought me that book and I hadn't, I kind of sat on my shelf for a while and I was thinking about getting into meditating. And that was the book that really hammered it home for me. How long ago um, did you read that book? Uh, 2009. And then it wasn't until 2011 that I actually mustered up the guts to go to, uh, I, I mean, I did transcendental meditation, but I don't think that that's like the end all be all. I think at the time I did, cause I was like 24 and like, I know everything, but I, I certainly, <laughs> certainly don't. Um, and, and the older I get, the more I realize how much I don't know, uh, which is, a, I think a good thing. Um, so I got that book. It wasn't until 2011 that it clicked. And then my experience with transcendental meditation is the, the entire reason that I have a creative life at all. Because before then I had a pile of half finished quarter finished things, you know, maybe, maybe even less than that, maybe even an eighth finished. And they were just sitting there and it wasn't until I was able to quiet my mind for even a minute that I was like, Hmm, maybe I can actually like complete simple tasks and uh, <laughs> maybe write some songs. And that's where, that's where my songwriting bug really started to flourish. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. 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 But it is because I meditate as well. And I only got into TM recently, but I've always meditated, but TM was the first time it clicked for me where I was like, Oh, I get it. And it does seem like even my wife was like, you're different. Like within yeah. two months, she was like, you're yeah. a different person. It's crazy. It's crazy. And in the mechanics of it, I think like for musicians or creative types, like we often have overactive brains and a lot of creative people I know have suffer from ADHD or OCD. And it's really, it's like shockingly common now, you know, the more people I talk to about it, the more like, yeah, I have ADD and the mechanics of TM having so, sort of something to root your practice with like a mantra is really helpful for a mind that is an associative mind. Um, musicians are, are improvisational by nature. And that, that, that associative thing is what helps us in certain situations. And then in certain life situations makes it impossible for us to deal with. So it's like having that root of a, of a, of a word or a, a phrase or a mantra to, to dissociate from everything is actually super helpful. And I think that's, for me, that's the mechanics of it. Like, yeah. Does that make, does that make sense? Oh, so, totally. so, so like, for example, if you were like, Hey, Eric, uh, I, I went to the boardwalk in ocean city, New Jersey. Let's give me this as an example. Yeah. I went to the boardwalk in ocean city, New Jersey. And I'm like, ocean city, New Jersey. Oh yeah. They have core brothers ice cream there. And one time a seagull came down and ate my ice cream. You know what? It's also next to the, the French fry place and the French fry place is next. To, and then you're still talking to me about I, whatever you're talking about. And I've completely zoned out and what TM and very, and then later other forms of meditation have assisted me with is like expanding the amount of time between thoughts so that my brain isn't firing on all cylinders at all time. It doesn't need to be like that. You know, I, I should, I should be listening to what you have to say <laughs> as opposed to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> being in fucking la la land, you know? Yeah, it's uh, 
It's weird because it's allowed. Like I had a, I'm on a gig now, and like a couple of weeks ago, they're like, "We need this," and instead of having that neuro, neurotic panic where I'm like, "I got to fucking come up with ideas and I got to figure this out," I just was like, "All right," and I just let it sit, which I would never do. I would just like fucking torture myself. But then, mm-hmm. like, I woke up one day and I was like, "Oh, here it is." <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, and it sounds because I got people who get skeptical of it and think it's culty and it's like no one's fucking hassled me like no one's yeah. called me 50 times and been like where's he spend more money yep yeah i think yeah it, it, it's yeah i mean this kind of speaks to a larger issue that i find with like all kinds of spiritual practices and religions it's like tm for yeah for you and i we did it we went it's done we never have to go back <laughs> it, uh, and and this was sort of what led me to meditation is because i wanted some sort of spiritual practice but i didn't want to go to church i didn't want to go to synagogue i didn't want to deify uh, some sort of patriarchal figure you know i didn't want to be like oh oh my my man god I, you know I, I i i pray to my man god that the idea of that that uh, revolted me. And you look like anyone could do whatever the fuck they want. If you want to worship God, you want to worship whatever, do whatever, worship Madonna. I don't give a shit. Like, uh, I, I think that like, for me, the, the appeal of something like transcendental meditation was that, you know, obviously they worship the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, but like that, you don't have to subscribe to that. It's just the mechanics of the actual technique that work for people. And like, yeah, I mean, if you're Mike Love and you're a millionaire, right? Mike Love, like the worst human ever the from the Beach Boys. <laughs> uh, like he's invested millions of dollars in transcendental meditation, but he also like does corn husk diets and like voted for Trump. And, you know, like I, I, I think like it's, it's also um, like hook, line and sinker. If you're somebody who's got an addictive personality and maybe you think that like you can get into the pyramid scheme aspect of, of the, of the, that part of TM, you know, like it's kind of like uh, how sometimes you'll meet a Scientologist and they're like, yeah, I just like, I'm a Scientologist and that's it. And they're not trying to get to like level seven. They're not trying. They're not trying to like like take diarrhea pills and get their feet in levels to whatever you know. Like, not that, you know? yeah, it's not that I like condone Scientology, but when I know people who are raised Catholic, go, yeah, that's pretty fucking crazy. I'm like, oh, that's the crazy one. Okay, yeah, <laughs> your religion's totally normal. Yeah, but but also the basic tenets of most religions are not what people manipulate sure. them to One be. Of, yeah. So so it's like there's aspects of the Jewish religion. You know, my family's Jewish, so it's like there's aspects of that religion where I'm like, man, if you put that next to a Buddhist text, they would be the same things. And if you put yeah. that next to a to an old Christian text, it would be the same thing. And I think that was my aha moment of just being like, okay, so it's not the things that it's not the religions that are bad. It's the way people manipulate them to get what they want that are bad. And I think the same thing happens in TM, same thing happens in Scientology. It's like, it's the people, it's the bad people who get in and manipulate it for the bad things, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so that, so that way you don't have to make sweeping generalizations about like all Christianity is bad. It's like, no, of course not. I've met totally fine, lovely Christian, uh, you know, people in my life. It's just like, it's, it's the, it's, it's, the, it's the people who come in who are like, I want to use this to get what I want and lots of money, you know, that's where it gets, or sex or whatever, whatever the weird thing is that they're into. <laughs> you had a meditation zine, didn't you? Cause I tried to find it online, but I said, uh, yeah. What, what was that inspired to like sort of, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's, it's a merch item. So I was like trying to, uh, I was trying to, uh, you know, make a little extra money on tour and do so in a way that didn't feel gross. You know, it was like, I could, yeah, what am I going to do? Am I going to like put my face on a beer koozie? I don't really drink beer. So it's like, maybe I'll make a meditation zine and hopefully put some positive energy out into the world, you know? Um, and, and, and funny enough, like the meditation zine is not so much, yes, there's meditation instructions in there, but it also kind of acts as a companion piece to my first record Palisades, which was a record that was born out of that meditation, learning how to meditate and, um, when I, when I wrote the songs for that record, those were the early stages of 
learning and sitting and I would sit with a notepad, meditate and write out lyrics. And I, I, you know, a lot of the songs in that record, I have like no idea where they came from. They kind of came from thin air, my subconscious. Uh, so it's funny to go back and look at those lyrics and be like, what the, what the hell is that all about? <laughs> um, so, it, so, and that's cool. You know, that's sort of what I gleaned from David Lynch too. Like David Lynch, is a huge influence in my life. And a lot of his art is really impenetrable and really difficult. And it comes from his subconscious. Uh, he doesn't know where a lot of his dialogue even comes from, but like, it's, that's what makes it so strikingly unique yeah. and, and, and abstract. So, so it's, uh, it, I, I think like the cool part about meditating is getting to that place of abstraction and using that within the context of, creativity um it doesn't you know sometimes and, and, it, and it changes like when i was working on my last record wiseacre i would do this um uh guided meditation of, for creativity i was like in a rut creatively and i was using a, a youtube link for like guided meditations for creativity and the it wasn't nearly as abstract as the process for palisades it was much more direct in my in my opinion so you know <laughs> i do are you because yeah. you mentioned your first album and it made because you i read in an interview where you said you you were on the sidelines for a long time was it something that you wanted to work towards for a while to do, to do a solo album or do your own work or i mean i think I think I wanted to prove to myself that I could be creative because I really wanted that. I, yeah. I, I wanted a creative life, whatever that meant. I, I didn't really know what that meant yet. Um, like I, okay. So I'm going to drop a bombshell on this podcast because I don't really, I don't really talk about this this much, but I was in a program when I was a kid called the Paul Green school of rock music that has now been franchised into this thing called school of rock. And Paul Green, the guy who ran it was like uh, a fucking megalomaniac. He's, I think now we haven't talked in a really long time. He's now like sober and hopefully, you know, working towards something great. But like when I was a kid, he was extremely discouraging of me writing music, which is like not what the school of rock is about now. So, you know, uh, to, to, if anyone listens to this and is a, is part of the school of rock program now, like, um, that is, it's much more positive and, and it's like, it's been corporatized. Like there's a manual, the kids are all really happy. They can like choose their curriculum, their songwriting curriculums. Like when I was in the program, like there wasn't really anything for, for songwriters and nor was I being encouraged to do so. In fact, I, every time that it came up, I was being discouraged from doing it. So I had a lot of trauma around that. And I think writing songs is sort of my big fuck you to not only everyone in that program who told me I couldn't do it, but also just like people in my life who maybe weren't supportive of it. And, and so the, the process really was born out of like a, a need to not only a need to prove that I could, to be, I could be creative, but I think like I deeply wanted it even aside from all that stuff. Like I did really want an artist's life. Um, it, it just made sense to me. Do you, why the fuck would they discourage that? Like that to me, it's like you should encourage kids to do anything. Yeah. Well, I think Paul was like, had a lot of issues and probably shouldn't have been teaching kids. Honestly, um, if you've watched the documentary, there's a documentary about the school called rock school that HBO funded back in 2005. People who made that movie are wonderful people. Uh, Don Argot is a phenomenal director. So like it's no shade towards anybody who worked on that film. But if you watch the movie, I mean, like you're watching a guy in like a slow spiral towards madness. The guy who ran the school. I mean, he's just, he, he's, he was like a Vince Lombardi. I think he prided himself on being like a Vince Lombardi, tough love kind of teacher. But for me, the, the lion's share of support I was receiving was from my parents and my parents to this day have always been super supportive of my music life. And I think they were really shocked to find out that I wasn't being encouraged to be creative and, and it wasn't just me. I mean, there's a lot of kids who came out of that program who were discouraged from doing it. And I'm at the, I'm at the point in my life where I feel 
okay about talking about it. I'm not scared of like anybody coming after me about it. Cause it's just like, well, that's the way it was. You could watch the documentary and use your two eyes and ears and come to that same conclusion. You know, um, it, it's, it was a little culty. <laughs> I was going to say, and was there a period where you were afraid people would come after you? Oh yeah. I'm still, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think like, I think up until like maybe two months ago, and then I now I'm starting to see it as my responsibility to at least mention it because I think like it did have a, a big effect on my creative process. And it still it still affects me like when I'm doubtful of my own uh, talents. And, and I think like uh, even the even uh, the other night I did this show in Nashville and before the show, I'm getting so worked up and nervous and I'm like, I got this. I know everything's going to be fine. I know against my better judgment, but that, that little like fire of the, the school of rock experience still kind of sits there. And I constantly have to work against that. That's such a common approach too, in our Western culture of the sort of, you know, the tough love, which is very, uh, I can't think of, not colonial, but... It, yeah. It's, no, it's, it, just, it, 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 it's antiquated, and it's it's negative reinforcement. And I I mean, think about, like, you're, you're in a relationship. Like, what if you approached your relationships with negative reinforcement? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I, you know, it's weird, because I have kids in there. Like, once in a while, you hear parents of, like, well, in my day, we would have... You know, we could have just, you know, smacked them and, you know, or done this and that. And I'm like, first of all, it's weird that you're romanticizing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that says a lot about you, right? But it's like, I couldn't imagine addressing my kids that way because it would, and seeing how they would react. It would be brutal. It would be brutal. And I think the School of Rock program now, like I see the transformation now that, now that Paul's not in the program, I mean, he's running his own separate school now. And it seems like maybe he's done a lot of, work and healing. I, I'm not totally sure. I haven't talked to him. So it's like I had to cut Paul out of my life because it was so overwhelming. And it was so like, uh, it, I felt like the more power I gave to it, the more it was preventing me from moving on as a person. So like, I can't, I feel like now, now the school of rock program is wonderful. And if kids are enjoying it, hell yeah i'm all for that i would go i would gladly go to a school now and do a seminar and talk to the kids because i feel like they've got so much support negative reinforcement does nothing you know think yeah. about a dog you know like you, you tell a dog no they're not really going to listen to you <laughs> uh so so i think like you do have to it's not even kill them with kindness. It's just like, let people just let people figure it out and let people be. And like, if people are, if you have a passion for being a musician, follow that, you know, like, and have people surround yourself with people who are going to like lift you up in that way. But like to, 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 to like, I mean, the most extreme example I can think of is like, it was my 11th birthday. And Paul like eviscerated me during a rehearsal about this Pink Floyd song. And it was my birthday and I'm 11. And I like, and I like went to the spaghetti warehouse with my parents afterwards. And I just like, I cried the whole time. And I, I think that's awful. I think that like, that's a moment. That's like a, that is a landmark moment in my childhood that like I can pinpoint and say, this was a thing that, prevented me from growing. This was a moment that prevented me from growing because I did, I was vulnerable. I was a kid. It was my birthday and I was in a rehearsal and there's like 23 other kids looking at you. It's like, it's like playground bullying nonsense, you know? Yeah. So, so anyway, not to harp on that too long, but I do think it's kind of, it is a vital element of why I still feel the need to create and, um, have something for myself. Um, you mentioned like being on the sidelines. Um, I often will like, uh, defer to other people or I'll push my needs aside to be of service to somebody else. This is why like I'm a session musician and I play in bands where I'm not the leader. It's because I feel comfortable. I, that, that is a very comfortable place, but the solo world is a very uncomfortable place. It's very challenging. And it's like, 
oh my god i'm in charge <laughs> like i'm <laughs> you know the last two hours i've been like trying to figure out how to work my npc so i can like do a solo show with an npc and that's like scares the living shit out of me but i know that i have to do it you know what i mean yeah to move forward how did you feel when you finished your first album was that it must have been a monumental like affirmation yeah yeah and it, it wasn't just that i mean i also had a punk band called lithuania that and that was sort of happening at the same time and there was a lot of there was like a groundswell of support in philadelphia for both of those things um and also in Asheville, which is where i was like kind of splitting my time between Asheville and philadelphia so there was there was we were like weirdly support there and i was just like okay people are into this i can i can do this you know, it gave me the confidence to be like, maybe this isn't such a crazy idea. I can actually make solo music. Um, and then the guys in Dr. Dog were super supportive. Um, so that was super helpful. Like joining that band really changed my life. And they taught me so much about songwriting and songcraft and just being around them teaches you a lot too. I mean, they're, they're so great at what they do. So um, that was all kind of happening at the same time. And then finishing that record it took me three years to finish it. We're talking about <laughs> taking a long time to finish things. Uh, it took me, it took me three years to finish it. And then when it was done, I was like, now I know everything that I did that I would not do ever again. You know, I know a lot of people say that, but like your first record is like, you're given license to make every single mistake. And I think I made every single mistake on that record. <laughs> um, but do you then, like it? Because I, I like it. it. Yeah, I yeah, of course. I mean, like, it, it's a document of a period of time. And, like, it's it's rad that I got that done. But I learned so much from it. And then moving on to the next project, I got String Quartet. And then I learned so much from doing that. Because it was like, okay, maybe not everybody wants to hear uh, aleatoric uh, <laughs> string quartets about Jewish bullfighters. Um <laughs> But what was so cool about that was, yeah, learning how to write for strings and then um, actually being in the room with a string quartet and saying, ah, those things I wrote down on paper maybe don't work in real life. That's cool. You know, that's a, that's a privilege. Not a lot of people get to do that. So that was super awesome. Um, and then I, once I did that project, I was like, well, now I want to do something that's like super digestible and super easy to understand because like... I'm kind of tired of playing these live shows that are very brooding. I want to play live shows that feel like a celebration. Um, those are the shows that I like to go see. So, I mean, I like both. I, I also will watch somebody brood. <laughs> Give me, I'm also cool with that, but like, I, I think that, um, I, I think it's, I, I think for me personally, I was looking for something like that. When did you just, because I know you started playing drums at five, which is pretty, was it, did when you started drumming, was it like an instant, like, this is it? Like, it, did it click in pretty quick? It, well, I mean, I wasn't good, but I, but I was extremely passionate about it and it made sense. Um, I don't know why. I don't know why I gravitated towards it. I think it was just like my parents showed me the Beatles when I was really young. And then we had a bunch of VHS tapes and one was called ready, steady, go. And it was be like the Beatles on some British or maybe, I don't know if it was British or American, but some TV show and they're playing live. And Ringo is just like beating the living fuck out of the drums. A lot of people think that he's like this tappy kind of drummer. It's like, no, he was like beating the shit out of the drums and he's smiling. He's like, yeah, doing that. And when you're a kid, that registers with you. I think that's why the Beatles were so effective, you know, like, especially for kids. So I like, I'm watching these guys and they're singing these songs about God knows what, cause I'm a child, but I'm seeing this, but I'm seeing this, but I'm seeing this drummer, I'm seeing this drummer smiling and just like having the time of his life being the shit of a Ludwig kit. And I think that that just stuck with me. And, um, I was like, I want to do that. And then I never doubted it. I mean, like my family, my mom and my dad just like kept reinforcing that. And in spite of all the other stuff, they would reinforce like, okay, you know, Eric wants to get this new snare drum and like, we'll save up for it. You know, we weren't like an upper middle class family, you know, like we were very, 
middle class. And so like, these were things that we had to work towards. And so when you got them, they felt like these big moments, you know, I got my first real snare drum and it was this big moment. Um, and it wasn't until I was about 11 or 12 that I started taking jazz lessons, uh, like jazz drumming lessons, classical percussion. And then like all this stuff was just, I mean, I would just not do my homework. Let's be real. I mean, I was just totally, I, I went to a really great school in Philly called Masterman. That was like a college prep school. But like the entire time I was there, I was like, I, I'm not going to be an accountant. I'm not going to be a, well, I'm not going to work at NASA. I'm not going to go to MIT. And a lot of my fellow students did end up in those positions, which is amazing. And like, more power to them. But like, for me, I just wanted to play music. I just wanted to go on tour. When I went on my first tour, it only affirmed that I was like, Oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to do. So pretty rare that someone so young figures that shit out. I mean, I knew what I wanted to do at a young age too. And it's like when people are like, I don't know what I want to do. I'm like, how do you not know? Like I always knew. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. And then, you know, you have to factor a lot of things into that. I mean, there's, maybe not parental support there. Maybe they're right. Uh, the, the family is low income and, or maybe they, or maybe the parents just don't think that it's a viable job. And my parents, I mean, I, I love my parents so much and they, I mean, they, I think they thought I was going to be like in Led Zeppelin or something. <laughs> <laughs> my parents are such rock and roll people. Like, they they really thought that like either I was going to join Led Zeppelin or I was going to like start the next Led Zeppelin. And that's I'm, <laughs> and that's Greta Van Fleet, and that's fine. You know, I'm glad that they did that. I'm glad that they started Led Zeppelin part two, but <laughs> I, 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 I I didn't I didn't do that. So um yeah, man, it's it's funny because they really thought that and then when they actually saw what my touring life was like, which was like eating fistfuls of cereal in a van. Uh, <laughs> you know. But they were—they must have been thrilled, right? I mean, because I've read how much they were into music and they had a big record collection. And oh yeah, I mean they—they they were so happy. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Ringo, and I've seen you talk about this before, where people people don't think Ringo's a good drummer, and it's like, but I think, which is nuts to me, because it's like, I think people, I think everybody wants Neil Peart and fucking Keith Moon, and they don't understand the difference between, (laughs) like, somebody who's not fucking filling every second with a fill with 15 different drums. Yeah. Well, here's what I'll say to that. I think it's a pretty big indicator of someone's personality. So, and I don't think it's, I don't necessarily think it's one or the other. I think it's like, there are some people where the natural extension of themselves is to play restraint. And I think that's beautiful. Like there, and there's some people like, so there's like, like um, Glenn from Wilco is an example of like a guy who's virtuosic, but yet it never feels that way. I, when I hear what Glenn does, it all, it all still feels very natural, but like what's happening when you're watching it is virtuosity um, or Bernard Purdy, like Bernard Purdy, it feels so good and his pocket is so ridiculous. But like when you watch him play, it's virtuosic. What he's doing is I can't, I can't even, it's tra- it transcends words. So like, yeah. I I think there's a lot of like talk about what we want, you know, one versus the other, but in some instances you, maybe you want a Keith Moon in some instances, maybe you want a Ringo in some instances you want a Jim Keltner or Bernard Purdy or, uh, you know, Al Jackson jr. Or some of these, these really restrained, but virtuosic drummers, you know? Um, so, so I think it speaks more to the drummer's personality of how much they play. And I like all of it, honestly, like I love Neil Peart. I love Rush. I love Rush just as much as I like Ringo. Like, I, yeah, I, didn't I, mean love, to sh- I didn't mean to like oh. do shit on those guys. Cause I, I love watching Keith moon play. Like it's, yeah. he's fucking the most interesting guy in the band to me to watch. Yeah. I mean, you know, for better or for worse sometimes, I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, I, but I think that like, 
you know, in my watching, watching drummers play over the years, like I go through phases and sometimes I would just want to watch somebody fucking shred. And then sometimes I want to watch Questlove just play like the most restrained, but like deep thing. Um, it just, it's just, it depends on my mood, but I like all of it, you know? Yeah. I used to be so picky when I was, when I was first touring, like I'd watch a drummer and be like, sucks, you know, whatever. (laughs) But now, but now I watch drummers and I'm like in awe of them. And it's so, it's such a better place for me to be. I think that was also sort of like rock school training was like, you know, you had to be the cock of the walk or something. You had to be like, you had to always be, you had to be protecting your heart, you know, but now I'm like, I want to watch somebody just rule yeah. and if, and that's, a, I think a much better place to be. I've been listening to a lot of bands with Jim white lately. And that guy is just, yeah. I, did you hear the springtime album that he did with, uh, it's, I forget who the piano player is and it's Gareth uh, Lydiard from tropical fuck storm and the drones. It's just oh, a nice. trio. It's a fucking, there's, two songs on that album that just, one that specifically just kills me emotionally. I mean, I mean, Jim is, yeah. I mean, what, I mean, there's nothing to say. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, Jim's, Jim's insane. Uh, and also like one of the nicest dudes you'll ever meet. So it's like that, that was really affirming for me when I finally got to meet Jim, we did a show, we didn't do a show with Silas White. We did a show with some other artists he was playing with uh, over in Brussels and he was a delight and his drums sounded great. He sounded great. I mean, he kind of steals the show wherever, whoever he's playing with. So that's great. Yeah. I've never seen him play live. I was hoping springtime would tour, but you know, fucking. Yeah. Oh yeah. The vid. Yeah. Did you tour with uh, Cass? I know you've worked with Cass and my friend Dan oh, yeah. Aid. Did you tour with Dan Aid? <laughs> I never toured with them, but I played some shows with them. Uh, you'll appreciate the story. Um, so there's a festival in Portland called Pickathon. Do you know about Pickathon? I don't. Okay, it's a blue, it's like it started as a bluegrass festival, but now it's like basically an indie indie music festival in Portland, Oregon. And uh, Doctor Dog was slated to play, and their the drum tech for the festival for the entire weekend just didn't show up, and so there were all. <laughs> There are all these house, there are all these house drum sets, uh, you know, parked at every stage. And the guy running the stage is just like, Hey, I know you really like tuning drums, which is true. I do like tuning drums. Uh, he was like, I really, I know you really like tuning drums. Do you mind like just coming to the main stage at like 9am tomorrow and just like giving everything the once over? And I was like, of course, I'm not, what am I else am I going to do? I'm going to be in my hotel, like, you know, watching judge Judy or something like I'd rather go to the festival. And so I go to the festival and I start setting up the drums and I'm like, you know, tuning everything. This guy comes on stage and he's got like a plaid button up shirt and like cargo shorts and a fiddle. And he's like, are you my drummer? And I was like, maybe, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) And, And he was just like, well, great. Okay. You know, uh, we're going to play a bunch of old bluegrass songs, some Americana stuff, and then we're going to do some violent femme songs. I was like, Oh, cool. I love the violent femmes. I was like, I was like, I'm Eric. He's like, I'm Gordon. I was like, Oh, you're Gordon Gano from the violent femmes. And you're asking me to play drums for you today because your drummer didn't show up. So not so, so then I'm like playing in the violent femmes for that day, which was just insane. That is fucking uh, crazy. And he's like, you know, blister in the sun. Right. I'm like, yeah. Like every, <laughs> like totally. Yeah, you want me to go? Yeah, I'll do that. Um, so Cass is watching the set uh, because Cass was also playing that weekend, but he didn't bring a drummer. And so he comes up to me and he's like, "Hey, uh, I thought this was like a bluegrass festival, so I just didn't bring a drummer." But me and Dan, you know, uh, do you want to come and play with us? And I was like, yeah, I'm a huge fan. I love your music. Like, sure. And I was like, I'll bring over a kit. He's like, nah. <laughs> okay. So I go over there and he's got a Deer Park uh, water cooler jug with a towel over it. He's like, he's like, I was hitting this and this sounds pretty good. <laughs> so, I, so I went over there and I played Jug with uh, the Cass McCombs band. 
That's great. And it was like so fun. It was so fun. I mean, I, I again, I was lucky. Like I was very familiar with Cass's catalog and um, it was just, it was funny. Like all the doctor dog guys were like, are you going to be tired for our set later? You're playing three, (laughs) (laughs) playing three sets today. Uh, but you know, and you played with uh, the femmes, no rehearsal. You just fucking jumped in. I just jumped in. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. It's on YouTube. If you want to watch it, there's uh, some, yeah, there's some footage of me just like, uh, chumping my way through. I mean, I was also really excited to play kiss off because that's personally my favorite one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it was, here's one thing I'll say. I, I bailed on the, the wire brushes halfway through blister in the sun because the drummer for violent femmes is such a great brush player and I'm not great at playing brushes. And so I, I pulled up to sticks cause I just, I wanted people to party. Like, uh, I, I was like, I'm not, I was like, I'm not good at this. I'm just going to grab my sticks. Was Gordon okay with that? I think he was fine. I don't think he noticed or cared. But that's pretty, like uh, you said, like you suffer imposter syndrome. It's like you stepped into two, two situations cold with no rehearsal. And that's pretty fucking impressive. Well, here's what I'll say about that. It's like, it's all body language. So something that I learned from playing just in bars around Philadelphia, you know, whatever the 10,000 hours is, right? Like you, you learn by watching people and you know, drummers are lucky in that we don't have to play notes. <laughs> uh, so, so it is, you know, a lot of times it's like you're playing a groove and there's an autonomic response there. So I'm playing a groove and I'm watching the guitar player and he's like, we're changing sections. So then you go to the ride and that's it. You know, it's like you can pick up on little rhythmic things. If you got a quick, if you trained your ear to be quick, you can, you can jump in. And so that's what I did in those situations. Uh, I was lucky for both of those in that I was familiar with Final Times catalog and Cass McCombs catalog. So that was just an extra special day of getting to play with people that I love and respect and admire. But, you know, if, if someone calls me up on a gig and they're like, Hey, got, you know, there's no time to rehearse. Just, just follow us. It can be done. It, it, it can totally be done. Yeah. Unless, unless, unless it's rush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I told me that, uh, playing with Cass is pretty, cause Cass will just be like, he'll point to you and be like solo. Like, it's just like that seat of the pants, which sounds yeah. terrifying. But I mean, if you're, I mean, I Dan's. I've known Dan for almost 20 years. Uh, Dan's Mason. Yeah. He's, every, he's oddly, or maybe not oddly, but there's three people who are constantly mentioned in this podcast that some way come up and he's, it's him, Wayne Kramer and David Yao. And he's, <laughs> yeah. David Yao. <laughs> yeah. Almost everybody has uh, a David Yao story. I've seen his butt. <laughs> a lot of people yeah. have seen his dick. I've seen his butt. Yeah. I was definitely, Oh, I almost saw, yeah. But, uh, I saw Jesus, Jesus lizard at starlight ballroom in Philly and, first song he jumped in the crowd and his pants completely ripped and he just played the whole show with a ripped pants leg he's uh yeah he's he was like i'm from chicago oh you are okay yeah and he's like and i worked at second city for years and he was like an influence on performers there as a as a just his his commitment to just fucking throw yourself into it and not give up. And then it's like, I even said it to him once. I was like, you realize you're like a comic influence. Right. And he was like, Oh no. <laughs> well, did, have you seen any of the footage of them recently when they're doing like Dudley and he's just like got a wolf mask on? Yes. And I then, just and watched he, that. He dips his hand in the black paint. Yeah. I think it's the, scary, it's the scariest thing I've ever seen. He's uh <laughs> <laughs> Plus as a lyricist I think his lyrics Are just fucking phenomenal Like I don't it, Feel like he gets His credit for that No Him and uh, you, Them and U.S. Maple Like uh, The the um, I can't remember I'm bailing on the guy's name uh, The lead The lead singer I don't of U.S. Know. Maple There's a, a, uh, John Dietrich Dietrich from Deerhoof just told me There's a documentary About them on YouTube That I have There is Acre Thrills Yeah Yes um, But uh he is like another guy that is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Why? <laughs> but yeah, some, some, like, some, some about drag city or something about Chicago in the nineties. 
the weird thing is, is Yao is like the sweetest guy. Like he is very soft spoken. Oh, yeah. He's very funny, but he's. And I told him once that he scares the shit out of a friend of mine. He almost seemed hurt. Oh, I mean, how could he not know that? <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, you come out in a in a crazy wolf mask and put black paint on your hands for the first song. I mean, kind of, kind of, kind of setting the bar, aren't you? <laughs> Uh, and U.S. Maple guy, I heard. I've never got to see them live, but I, I heard a story that he would come out with a knife, like a pocket knife, and he would just kind of like dangle it, but, and like look at the front row, and then like kick into the song. Wow, that's crazy! Like, just, yeah, just like just this is so scary. I saw them once, but it was like a thousand days. I saw them open for Shellac, and it was like a gazillion years ago. But so sure, I don't, I don't sure. remember any knife tactic, but that was. That's definitely something that yeah they they would play a show with shellac. I know Steve, I know Steve Albini worships U.S. Maple. That's a yeah he he talks about that in the documentary, but I don't want to spoil that for you. So <laughs> watch the doc. As a was there an, fronting a band? Was there anybody who influenced you in that regard? Or was oh that... man, you know I don't like. I don't find a lot of influence from those kinds of people. Like the people I look up to, I mean, I, I really look up to like Steven from the flaming lips because yeah. he's just somebody that I like think is the coolest and is constantly doing things that I'm like blown away by. I mean, I love Wayne. I, I mean, I love Wayne as a front person, but like, I've never really subscribed to the, like <laughs> whatever this is, the, the Jagger thing. I mean, that's cool. That's cool. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, like I, I probably need to think about that a little bit more as I prepare to do some solo stuff, some shows for next year. Like, I do want to just have way more fun on stage. Like I look up to the residents. I look like that's who I look up to. Like I watch videos of the residents and they've all got even, not even the eyeball mask stuff. Like when they've got like big headlamps on and they're just like, <laughs> they look like aliens like that. Like that's what gets me so excited. I'm like, cool. There's a dude with a skull mask on and a bunch of people wearing headlamps. Like, Hell yeah. I feel they keep being brought up on the podcast. There must be some kind of resurgence happening or on the bubble with them. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, they have a, they have a a tour happening. It's like some anniversary tour. Um, I saw them live one time and it was not good, but like I watched YouTubes of them from back in the day from like 1980, we're like 86 to 88. The resident, the stuff that they were doing is like so far beyond. And Laurie Anderson, I really look up to Laurie Anderson I look up to the weirdos, like the ones who are just kind of doing performance art. Like to me, or David Byrne, you know, like I, I look up to David Byrne immensely because like, it's not really rock and roll. Yeah. It's I would, not. I went into, who's the guy who influenced Bowie a bit in the eighties? I can't think of his name, but he would have. Klaus Nomi. Yes. Nomi? yes. Boy, yeah. Holy fuck. That was fast. Yeah. Yeah. But like I'm watching quick. him, it's just like, so eons ahead of its time. Oh yeah. And, and again, that's more, that's way more performance art. Bjork. I look up to Bjork. You know, these are the people like I, I, they, they kind of, ch- <laughs> they kind of challenge the notions of performance and that's what I gravitate towards. So like, I want to incorporate that more into what I do because I think what they're doing is so it's just, it's just more fun. I don't, I don't necessarily have a ton of fun going to a show and just watching somebody go like, la, 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 you know? Yeah. I saw Jeffrey Lewis years ago and he did a, you know, he would do things with like illustrations and all kinds of stuff. And my friend next to me who was a musician goes like had a problem with it. And I'm like, that means he's doing the right thing. If he's making people go like, it's not how you do it. It's like, yeah, that's how you do it. Yeah, exactly. And Jeffrey's amazing. And it's funny you mentioned him because I was thinking about him this morning. Um, as, as I was getting frustrated with my MPC, I was like, what would Jeffrey Lewis do in this situation? Uh, yeah, he's uh, brilliant. I, like everything he does, I just am in awe of. 
he's a he's a genius and i don't use that word lightly i mean like he's definitely somebody that you meet him and you're like oh this guy yeah is on another he's on another level um yeah yeah i met him a couple times and then he did the podcast and it was like one of those guys who you know he just goes into these trains of thought and you're just like fuck i'm a i'm simple <laughs> yeah yeah you know uh we we uh he we did a show with him in uh god i mean dr dog and jeffrey have done a lot of shows together and he's done comic books for us and stuff like he's he's the shit but i remember one time he was explaining to me that he did the sonic youth covers records but it was all in sonnet form and it was called sonnet youth wow yeah so there's like chew on that for a second like that's where he's <laughs> like like that's where his brain is you know uh he's doing He's like, yeah, okay, I'll make a, I'm really into sonnet form because I love Shakespeare and I'm really into Sonic Youth. So I'll put the Sonic Youth songs in sonnet form, call it Sonic Youth. <coughs> and that's the idea. That's the concept. So I think like the having a conceptual anchor is so crucial to what he does. And like, I, I'm also finding myself gravitating more towards that. Like I just did this show based off of Rob Zombie's Dragula and uh, it was a uh, brass quintet, you know, horn quintet. And it's my first time writing for horns. And I'm like trying to interpolate pieces of Dracula, the, the shitty Rob Zombie song into this like art, this like weird jazz art piece thing. And it was really freeing to have something to something to root me down as opposed to like, had I approached the show with absolutely no conceptual anchor, I was, I was struggling to write music for it. Cause I was just like, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to write about? And instead it's like, Oh, if I could take this nugget of this motif and then extract things from it, that's, that, that's, that, and I think like Jeffrey works that way too. It's like, he needs everything to be like, very logical it's like he put he makes these comic strips and then they're all incorporated into the songs which he then projects during the show and it's like a complete meal (laughs) yeah yeah i i've seen him like i'd love seeing him live i don't know why anybody would have i don't understand those people who are like uh just like fucking open your mind aren't we create aren't we creative isn't that how we're supposed to be yeah i think so yeah yeah, I I caught myself getting that way a few years. Ago. One of the reasons I got into meditation is like I started getting in that way. It was like new things, you know, like that grumpy old guy thing. And I was like, "Whoa, you have to fucking stop!" Because <laughs> this yeah. is death. It's a death. It, it is, and uh, we all have to catch ourselves. And I mean, it's like you're watching. Say you're watching like SNL, and you see some new band, and you're like, Ugh, "Not this." <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> But then it's it is helpful to open your mind and be like, well, maybe there is something to this that is beyond me and or it's it's beyond my comprehension and maybe I need to dig deeper and find something about it that I like. Yeah. Um so I, I feel yeah, I constantly have to do that. It's it's a good way to not stay cynical. I don't want I don't want to be that way. Yeah. And it's like some of the greatest bands didn't get like you know people didn't get the fucking mc5 and the stooges some people like i know people who saw them live and they're like i thought it was noise like it didn't make sense to me of course yeah. depending on the mc5 what day you caught them what what drugs they were <laughs> sure sure <laughs> but still, yeah one phenomenal musicians yeah i mean and i don't yeah it, it's tough to know whether anything like that will ever happen again uh it's like with the internet, there's so much more knowledge about like how to play music and how to be musicians. And so I think like even still, like when I hear really interesting music, there's also some backstory about like how they're also into theater or performance art or some other channel that's making it different. You know what I mean? Um, so, I, and I especially feel that way with a lot of the music that's coming out of Chicago. There's so much great music coming out of Chicago and uh, it's so challenging 
and different. And I'll usually find out later that there's some other, maybe they're classically trained and then they got into playing rock music. And so their approach is different or like maybe they were artists first and then they were like, they got super into beef heart and then wanted to make a band, you know? So like that, that's the stuff that I'm like, Oh, okay. You, know, you what- recently worked with Ohm who and I had, uh, I had, I had Marcy. Macy. 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 I, I, I thought that and then I second guessed myself because I'm neurotic. But yeah. Oh, okay. uh, and they're phenomenal. And that, I feel like that the first time I heard them, I was like, all right, I have to take a second to listen to this because it's not what you think you're going to get, which is what is good. <laughs> yeah. And they're great. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, they're so great. And like when I see them live, it just, uh, you know, it, it makes me so happy because I'm just like, you know, I hope I hope that this catches on and people, more people, check it out because it's so creative and so great. And and not just them. I mean, like Namdi is another one that I really look up to. Um, there's so many people in the Chicago scene that are just ridiculous. Probably just because it's so cold. <laughs> Got to find something to do. Yeah, because she'll play free. Uh, Macy will play free jazz stuff with Ken Vandermark, which I would fucking yeah. kill to see. Yeah. Yeah, she does. And she, yeah, she does like so much improvisational work outside the band and, but then also can hang and play with Japanese breakfast. So it's like, yeah, they're, they're both just so insanely talented. Do you do a lot of improvising stuff? Yeah. uh, You know, I used to, and I, I, I get hot and cold with it because like, I think I have too much jazz damage. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I get, I get really hot and cold with it because it can, it can be so great, but then like, I feel like the constant thing with that is like, um, you know, making sure your ego is in check and like making sure you're not stepping on anybody. You really have to approach it from places then to, to improvise in a way that I think is like productive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I don't. I won't keep you. Uh, yeah, I wasn't even sure what day it was. I thought it was Sunday for a half second. It's okay. It's Monday. You, it, you know, your life is all right if you're really not sure what day it is. That or you're really fucking high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but thank you. This was great. I really. Oh man, uh, you're one of the funnier dudes I've had on. To be quite honest, I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with the Wire. Please become a Patreon subscriber. If you like, also subscribe to the show on your iTunes or what have you not, and tell your friends about the show. That would mean a lot to me. As well as uh, go to the link tree in the show notes or themattdwyer.com or Conversations with the Wire at the Instagram, and you could learn more about the show, buy merch, and all those great things. Thank you very much for listening.